I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today is Professor Penelope Andrews, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Cape Town. Professor Andrews began her teaching career more than two decades ago at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. She has been tenured at four law schools, one in Australia and three in the USA, and has served on significant law school committees and the boards of public interest legal organizations, as well as on business councils. She has been a member of and has chaired several accreditation site teams for the American Bar Association section on legal education and admissions to the bar. She's also a member of the New York State Bar Association and the American Bar Association. Additionally, Professor Andrews has published four books and more than 50 articles and book chapters focusing on international human rights law, comparative constitutional law, gender and racial equality, and the judiciary. Welcome to the show, Prof. Andrews. Thank you. To begin with, you started your legal career in 1982 when you earned your LLB from the then University of Natal in Durban after completing a BA in economic history. And in 1984, you received an LLM from Columbia University School of Law in New York. Taking into consideration the fact that those were incredibly difficult times in South Africa's history, can you please share with us what made you choose law as your major subject and future career path? Um, well, I, I, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Natal, and um, I had received uh, a bursary from the South African Council of Churches to do that, and I worked at a legal aid clinic. So I was very, very interested in um, pursuing a degree that would be able to help people. I grew up in Cape Town, and I was educated by nuns. I went to a high school, Immaculata High School, uh, and my mother died um, the first year that I was in high school. So I was 13 years old. So the nuns were a very, very strong influence in my life, and I thought that uh, their particular um, role modeling as well as their commitment to service and charity and so on influenced the way that I saw the world. And, um, and even though my mother had died when she was 33 years old, as a child I remember her always you know, asking me to deliver food at a neighbor's house and, and so on. So that, that idea of helping people was very much part of my ethos. Um, when I was doing my BA, and because I worked at the legal aid clinic, the idea of becoming a lawyer was possible because I was dealing um, in many ways with the legal problems of people and the legal problems of poor people uh, in, in and around Durban. So in essence, you were shaped into the legal career right from an early age and having a need to help people, looking at commitment to service. Yes, yes. And I was also very much influenced, of course, by the black consciousness movement, um, which was very, very powerful at the University of Natal. And, and those were the, the, those days, the height of the anti-apartheid movement and, and, and a lot of uh, protests on campus. Um, and so that combination of a, a political commitment to ending apartheid, as well as the sort of daily um, witnessing uh, the daily depredations of apartheid, combined to this, this combined to um, allow me to see myself as somebody who could 
make a difference, and the way to make a difference was to be a lawyer. And in many ways, in those times, there were really limitations on what women's opportunities were. I know that traditionally it was always sort of you becoming a teacher or becoming a nurse. And coming into law and being a lawyer must have been quite a a change going against the norm. Absolutely. And in those days, you know, I'm classified as colored. And in those days, if you went to a white institution, which the University of Natal was, you required permission from the Minister of Coloured Affairs to attend the university. So firstly, I was there, very, very much a small minority of black students at the University of Natal in those days. And in my class, there were, um, if I recall correctly, there were something like 67 students. And in the class, I think nine of us were black and three were women. So yes, it was, it was a very, very different time. So you, and, were, a, you um, were a double minority? Yes, yes. And um, I, um, you know, and I think that in those days we weren't paying much attention to sexism and patriarchy. The major focus of our political struggle was uh, ending racism and apartheid. So even though I felt and I really believed strongly in um, equality, gender equality, there wasn't the structure and the framework that exists now. I mean, feminism abroad had already made great strides, but feminism in South Africa in those days was completely um, overshadowed by the anti-apartheid movement. And reflecting back from your position today, do you think that the South African legal system has developed according to your expectations? Um, I can say yes and no. So formally it has. I think our constitution is a wonderful document. You are familiar with the many, many political and social rights incorporated in the Constitution, as well as social and economic rights, which can be enforced in a court of law. So we have a really, really terrific Constitution that has been praised internationally, and that serves as a very important document through which you can pursue human rights. Um, So the, the architecture is there, and I think that the Constitution really commits South Africa to a path of equality and dignity. And if you look at the jurisprudence of the Constitutional Court, for the most part, the Constitutional Court is moving the country in a particular direction towards democracy, towards social justice and rights for all. Um, When I say no, it hasn't uh, um, achieved um, what I'd hoped, is that there is a huge gap between the reality of the lives of a large portion of South Africans, the majority of whom are black, the majority of whom are women, and the rights in the Constitution. So people are not able to socially and economically enjoy what the Constitution promises. So the benefits of the Constitution has impacted, um, I think, still a minority of South Africans. I mean, all of us benefit tremendously from the fact that we have the vote that South Africa is a country that has a black government, that this in many ways is a black country. And so it's not, it's not the apartheid country that I grew up in. Um, but the legacy of apartheid is so entrenched, and in fact in some, with some indicators it's been reinforced, um, that I think there's a real problem. I don't think it's a problem of the Constitution. I just had a piece in the conversation yesterday arguing that the problem of radical economic transformation doesn't lie with the Constitution. It lies with government's inability, failure, neglect, 
um, maladministration and so on to really give effect to the benefits of the Constitution. So from your point of view, to address those gaps, we need stronger implementation on a policy level, uh, particularly driven from government. Absolutely, absolutely. But with active engagement from all sectors of South African society, from the corporate sector, from the media, from civil society, from the the, the religious organizations, and so on. So all professional organizations have to be involved in this. So... Um, I think that it requires government to pass laws, to enact policies, to implement and enforce them, but it also uh, requires critical citizenship. I think that there is a gap between the formal words of the Constitution and the culture of human rights in South Africa. I think that we've not uh, comprehensively internalized the culture of social justice and human rights, which is embedded in our Constitution. So the work of implementation and enforcement is largely the work of government, but it's also the work of everybody in South Mm. Africa, because all of us are implicated in making the Constitution real. True, and I think that 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 comes through in many areas, not just from a legal perspective, but I think citizens have really got to take responsibility for for themselves and that we live in a society that we all need to contribute to. Yes. Now, as our program is all about gender equality, it is increasingly becoming a global focus, and one of the key areas for me is about female leadership being important for the future of women in Africa and around the world. In your role as Dean of the Faculty of Law, do you think that 50-50 representation across the board can be achieved? Well, I think firstly in law schools, you know, I was a a law professor in the United States and I was also a dean at a law school there. Um, When we talk about 50-50, actually there are more women in law schools now than in men and women are outshining men. And are you finding that across the board in the USA as well as in South Africa? In South Africa, we see an increasing amount of women, and I think it's just a matter of time. In fact, we're going to be pretty pretty soon. Women will outnumber men um, in in the student body, but in the law faculty here at the University of Cape Town, we have a a larger number of female lecturers than male. So, you know, the the 50-50, I think, needs to... We need to look at the places where there's still the glass, what they call the glass ceiling. We need to look at institutions where women, where there are impediments to women's advancements and then really look at those impediments to see how we can change those structures, those cultures, those attitudes and so on. So, for example, one area in which women are not well representative is in partnerships in um, uh, law firms and particularly the so-called Big Five. Women are not represented in the boards of companies as CEOs of companies. So we can see that there are many, many places where women are not represented. I would say that women are not represented much in law enforcement, not in the same numbers. Um, And there are some professions where women clearly are outnumbered. So the question is, what are we doing to ensure that um, women can advance in those areas? Then the second thing is we have to look at not just women who are professionals or have university education or even are educated. What are the impediments to uh, uh, helping poor women and women who really are economically marginalized to be able to advance and be able to develop the skills, get education? You know, what are the living conditions? Are they secure? Are they safe? 
All these questions need to be addressed because I think that even though women are outnumbering men in terms of numbers, we still haven't seen women um, as major actors in the major institutions of the society. So we need to shift that. And I think there are many, many impediments. So there are class impediments, there are safety and security questions, there's attitudes, cultures, and so on that need to be addressed. But I think at the universities, I don't think that we have a problem with the recruitment of women. I think there's still some faculties where women are not, um, have not achieved the same numbers as men. But even in those faculties, I'm here thinking of traditional male, quote-unquote, male faculties like science, engineering, and so on, you really see a, an, an, an increase in the number of women who are, you know, entering those professions and getting those degrees. The question is, what's the advancement? And here I'm looking at uh, thinking about Cheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. Yes. Um, I mean, she focuses on a particular um, demographic. Um, but I think that, that, that the, the numbers are there. The question is, how do women advance and really make a difference? And then the second question is, do women make a difference in those professions? I mean, this is a question that we ask about the legal profession. Uh, do women judges make a difference? Uh, do women make a difference when they are in places where they could actually influence policy and influence <laughs> attitudes? Well, one of the things, a question on, on do women make a difference, I know that there's a couple of surveys that have come out of, of Credit Suisse in terms of the composition of women on boards, and they found that corporates who have got greater diversity, including women, including people from different races, different backgrounds, tend to perform financially more positively than companies that don't. So it does go for the diversity argument. And something else that I've been pondering, and, and you've just given me some of your stats from saying that there are only three women when you were enrolled in your class of approximately 67 students, and now there are a greater proportion of women coming into the schools, that if there isn't some kind of, of latent effect that we're building up these populations of educated young women, that now we have to tip the scale, as it were, in terms of the professional side of getting them to snowball into organizations because those numbers just don't seem to be changing. Yeah, I think those numbers are hard. And I think, um, let me talk about the legal profession, for example. I think that um, the, if you look at how um, uh, young professionals, legal professionals become partners, so there's a particular trajectory that people take. Um, and I think you could argue that, you know, the trajectory is there. If you do well, you should be able to make the partnership track and make partner. But I think that the very, at the same time that uh, people are advancing in their careers, let's say law firms, it coincides with uh, a sort of women's um, uh, preference for either raising a family or doing, having a different kind of work environment. You hear a lot about the balance, work, uh, um, uh, play, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that um, one of the reasons, and, and, and this is, you know, let's assume that, that all things are, are equal. I think one of the reasons uh, uh, is that uh, the career path doesn't match uh, women's... Um, life path. Uh, yeah, life path. So in, in, at universities, I think that many universities now, I know in the States, are actually taking, taking account, are taking into account women's life paths when they think about tenure and promotion and so on. 
Now, I think that, um, I don't know enough and I haven't studied this, but I imagine that corporations and law firms are saying are doing the same um, because we have the situation in which women come in in great numbers and the question is if they are excellent, which I've no doubt they are, um, firms are then looking at ways to um, ensure that they are retained. So I think retention practices um, in law firms now probably include a look at the life parts of women. Um, the second is, is that I think that globalization and technology has created the possibilities for greater flexibility uh, in terms of our work lives and how we structure our work days. Um, and I think that, that accrues to the benefit of women. More and more of that is happening, so I think you'll see uh, the advancement of women. Um, it will take some time, but I, I do believe that if these questions, these impediments are addressed, um, then we will uh, make some progress. Now, the elephant in the room is, is that sexism is so alive and well in South Africa. I mean, L.B. Sachs 20 years ago referred to patriarchy as the only truly non-racial institution in South Africa. I mean, I think that sexism and patriarchy is much part of our DNA. They are. And I'm constantly amazed. But the culprits are not just men. The culprits are women, too. So... You know, statements like boys will be boys, our expectations of men, we, um, you know, and then, and then the very, very harsh reality of violence against women in South Africa. I mean, that's the most extreme manifestation of real, really deeply entrenched sexist attitudes. So I do think that we need to, to think um, uh, um, more to think more carefully and be more strident about eradicating um, sex, uh, sexism and patriarchy. And that is, you know, that affects everybody across all classes, ages, etc. Absolutely. And have you, given the work that you've done and things that you've been exposed to, are there any potential solutions to, to resolve issues of, of patriarchy and sexism besides trying to put out policies and have them implemented to, and educate people? Well, a couple of things. I think that leaders, women leaders, make a difference. I mean, I've raised the question before. But I do think women leaders make a difference in that, um, uh, firstly, we can, you know, if we are committed to um, broadly defined a feminist project or we can say we define, we committed to equality and social justice, then we are in a position not just to direct policy but to influence policy. So I have a zero tolerance attitude towards sexism and, you know, I am very straightforward about it. Um, so I think that, um, you know, we, we, have, we have the capacity to do so and we should. Then the second is, you know, this idea of role modeling, which I know is overused. But there are students who are comfortable with seeing a dean who is a woman, a deputy dean who is a woman, a, um, you know, head of department who is a woman. So I think it's just visible. So, for example, when Barack Obama was president of the United States, you had young children who were born and who grew up with the idea that there was a black man who was a president. That's deeply ingrained in their consciousness and in their psyche. So it's the same where you see women leaders. Um, so I do think it make, can make a difference. Now, of course, if the structures are, st are such that you have a hyper-masculinist uh, approach in your workplace and so on, then I think that's a problem because it doesn't matter if there's a woman or a man in the building, you know, the culture uh, resists any change. Um, and so uh, I think that the legal profession is quite a competitive profession. I think law schools are very, very competitive. 
and um, I think that we need to sort of think about that. But I'm also uncomfortable with kind of essentialist notions about women, that women care more, that women are more collaborative, all that, that sort of stuff. I don't think women genetically are programmed to this. I think that women's experiences um, make them more um, conscious and sensitive to this because I think our experiences of being excluded, of being disrespected, of being marginalized makes us acutely aware of these issues in the same way that blacks are more acutely aware of racism than whites because they're at the receiving end of it. So you sort of you're always kind of uh, walking a, a, a fine line between essentialist arguments about the sort of biological nature of women versus our experiences that make us really, really more prone to want to change particular cultures and institutions because they discriminate not just against women, but they discriminate against, you know, almost everybody because they also discriminate against men, even though it, 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 it accrues to the benefit of men. And I think different industries have got different expectations too. As you mentioned, law is a very, very competitive space. So I think that depending on the industry, it also calls for different qualities of the individuals that operate in those sectors. Yes, yes. So that while you, for example, let's look at the, the legal space, which is competitive. You know, competition is good. You compete against yourself. Of course, you've always got to compete in an ethical way. The, the rules have got to be fair, etc., etc. Um, but, you know, so they sprung up this notion that women are not competitive, that women do not, um, um, you know, women don't operate well in such a high, hyper-competitive environment. I think part of it is, is, you know, you can temper the high competitive, hyper-competitiveness. You can ensure that the rules are fair, that the, 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 there's a level playing field, all of that. I think what women, what bedevils women, is that we grow, we grow up, you know, we, 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 we sugar and spice and all things nice. We're supposed to be nice. We're supposed to be agreeable. We're supposed to be pleasant. And you see women subsuming themselves in personal relationships, um, maybe in parenting, the world operates expecting us to be agreeable and at our own expense. And men don't generally have that. So I think what you need to do is change it so that we all take control of who we are. So that, I, you know, a 10-year-old girl doesn't have to be agreeable if what she's experiencing doesn't agree with her. So she should be supported to say, no, I don't agree with this, and, and not be seen as, not a nice girl. Not somebody, you know, this nice girl thing, I think, really gets in the way of us being, developing into fully-fledged, autonomous, independent uh, um, uh, individuals in the way that men are encouraged to have opinions and, you know, and be strong. I mean, we, we now know, see the literature, you know, a woman leader, the adjectives to describe her is generally denigrating and insulting, and the same qualities are seen as very, uh, you know, flattering and, 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 and complimentary to men. So those double standards operate all the time. That's something I find very frustrating, that if you are projecting the same qualities, so men are, are perceived to be the boss, but women are perceived to be bossy. Women yeah. who are asserting themselves seen to be aggressive, whereas if it had been a man, he is asserting himself and he's admired for these qualities. So the same qualities are, are being judged differently by different genders. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know, the people who are doing the judging are both men and women. Yes, we've all got so these been around, yes, yes. framed stereotypes, which are actually stereotypes are dangerous. Yep, yep. 
So breaking the stereotypes, I think, is the hardest challenge for um, for, women, for 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 all of us. I always say that it's so interesting that eradicating racism, hard as it may be, is so much easier than eradicating sexism because the people we love sometimes behave in sexist ways. Our relationships very often are tempered uh, with sexist attitudes and so on, and it's very, very difficult, and it's in the private spaces that sexism is reinforced, whereas racism generally is not reinforced in private spaces because black and white people, to a large extent, in a racist society um, operate in different spheres. Um, so fighting sexism is very, very difficult uh, for women, and some of it, some of the sexism is obviously benign. This idea that men protect women, that's a benign notion. Um, and women think that they benefit. You know, there's also this idea, you know, of the sugar daddy, the man who can provide you if you don't have the resources with all kinds of resources. You know, that this is these are the cultural things that you need to eradicate if you really want to work towards equality. And the key is to give women access to resources so they don't have to depend on others to provide resources to them. A hundred percent right. And uh, resources in terms of not just from a finance and economic perspective, but also knowledge. And I think to a larger extent, a lot of women don't actually know what their rights are because there is someone has told them something and they believe it uh, rather than going and investigating it for themselves to understand what's out there to protect them. Yes. Today, we're talking to Professor Penelope Andrews, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof. Andrews, we've been talking about women, we've been talking about sexism, and I read that you'd published several books, one of which is called From Cape Town to Kabul, Reconsidering Women's Human Rights which is described as a book that considers how government can help change the lives of all women, irrespective of their socioeconomic status, religious affiliation, in order to attain gender equality. Can you share with us some of the most salient observations and effective interventions that you came across? Um, so the first thing I would say is, is that you need the legal blueprint. You need official, uh, an official statement that sexism and patriarchy and gender subordination will be eradicated. And that legal blueprint is the Constitution. So you, the, a government has to unequivocally commit itself first through an official document like a Constitution um, to gender equality and social justice for women, eradicating violence against women and so on. Because that is the place that you need to start from, a, an official statement that all forms of discrimination will not be tolerated. And then, to go back to our earlier conversation about implementation and enforcement, government then has to develop policy and practices that really uh, uh, lead towards the goals of gender equality. And um, what I try to do in my book is really to look at the South African experiment and look at the possibilities and limitations of the Constitution to, to sort of uh, uh, evaluate um, what the obstacles are and how we can uh, pursue gender equality in the face of deeply, deeply entrenched cultural and other uh, uh, stereotypes about women. Um, so I think that the, 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 the laws and the policies are very, very important. 
But I think you need two things. You need a major fundamental shift, almost a shift in stereotypes about women, but you also need um, economic tools to make a difference for women. So, for example, you know, the United Nations Development Report every year lists the state of development of, of countries. And so you have at the top the most affluent countries and at the bottom the poorest countries. And I've looked at those statistics over the years. And at the top always you have the Scandinavian countries and you have Australia and so on. Um, and if you look very, very closely, there's a correlation between economic, the economic development of a country or, or the situation of affluence and gender equality. So, for example, I think that Norway and Sweden and Denmark, they generally make it to the top. They have very, very well-developed laws and policies and practices about gender equality. So there's almost a correlation between affluence and gender equality. Then you go down the line, you look at the poorest countries, Yemen, Afghanistan, and so on, and you look at the attitudes towards women and the state of the economy. So the poorest countries seem to correlate with gender inequality, which goes to your earlier point about greater diversity, a larger range of people involved in the economy makes for a stronger economy. Of course, and when we talk about the fact that women tend to outnumber men in populations, if you've got 50% of your workforce that are not working because you have decided to denigrate women or make them subservient for whatever reason, of course it's going to have an impact on the affluence of the country. Yes, yes. And you see that. It's, it's clear so I think that, well, the one thing is at least there's global recognition that these are serious problems and need to be addressed. Um, I think the greatest challenge is, is uh, fundamentally then a cultural one, an attitudinal one, because the culture prevents the, the uh, uh, resources from women having access to resources. So even though the struggles go hand in hand, you have to have a full unequivocal acknowledgement that women are equal, that women are not second-rate citizens, and so on. And there are too many places in the world where, unfortunately, that's not the case. And so they will never develop fully because uh, uh, it's just not good economic policy. Uh, and like you said, it starts from the top down, having an official statement, and it's got to permeate every spectrum of society. Prof. Andrews, turning towards more of a personal side, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on this program who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields is about the factors that have contributed to their success. So some people speak about hard work, others talk about perseverance. In your opinion, what have been some of the key drivers to your success? Um, well, I would say that... Um uh, probably resilience. Uh, what do I mean by that? Um, you know, my mother, we grew up, I grew up um, in Kensington and Bontiaville, which are, Bontiaville is on the Cape Flats, Kensington, these are sort of traditionally colored areas, um, low, middle and low um, income people. Um, my mother divorced my father when I was very, very young, and she died uh, when I was 13. And um, I was actually present and witnessed. My sisters and my brother and I witnessed my mother having an, an asthma attack and dying. Um, and I think that was the most 
traumatic and painful event in my life. I don't even have the vocabulary or even the understanding that that was happening, but when, you know, looking back, that was, which meant that experiencing, for me, experiencing such trauma so early in my life, in many ways, was also a strengthening thing because I've observed the way I've dealt with different things in my life, and I think that um, sort of res- I, I, I developed resilience because of that singular um, traumatic incident as a as a child. Um, then the other thing that um, I think contributed I was is was the nuns. The nuns were um, they were devoid of sentimentality. They were very strict. They had high expectations of us. And um, we, we were supposed to satisfy the expectations, which we did. So another lesson I learned was that you have to have high expectations of yourself. And when I mentor people, I say that. Um, so that also helped. And the third is, is that I've always been, I've always seen myself as an outsider. Um, you know, in South Africa, colored people or mixed race people or a large population in Cape Town, but to some extent we sort of cultural and racial outsiders. And so I've always sort of seen myself as an outsider looking in, which has helped because I've lived in Australia, I've lived in the United States, I've lived in Canada, I've lived in many countries in Europe, you know, visiting for uh, significant periods, which has given me the um, possibility to really engage and, and, and enjoy it because my expectations were not to be long. Um, but to be an outsider, but also uh, enjoy the benefits. And I particularly like New York City for that, because everybody's an outsider in New York, and, you know, New York has so much to offer. So I think those were the factors. I was also extraordinarily privileged to have people along the way who, you know, gave me directions, who pointed things out for me and who made me possible for me to pursue possibilities which would not have been there if they'd not pointed it out to me. So again, another thing I always tell young people is to, you know, when opportunities are there, seize them. You know, go for it. And don't ever uh, preclude yourself or excuse yourself from opportunities because, you know, you've got to be be, um, um, looked over and not overlooked. So uh, those are the things I think that have, have really contributed to this very privileged life that I have. I think that's a wonderful expression, looked over and not overlooked, because I think young people tend to think that they know everything. And it's being able to follow those those directions, those pointers. Um, and I really appreciate you sharing your experiences, you know, the detail of, of the trauma, resilience, having high expectations, um, some of the advantages of being an outsider, of being able to enjoy and contribute in different cultures and societies across the world. What would you say has been the best lesson that you've learned throughout your career? That you've got to be kind to people. That if you have high expectations of yourself, um, you should have high expectations of people, but you should also be kind to them. It's taken me almost a whole lifetime to learn that you know, that I have, because I have such high expectations of myself, I, I haven't always been kind to people who don't necessarily um, rise up to that. And I think there are, very, there are many, many reasons why people don't. So I think that's one lesson that I've learned. The second is, is to be tolerant of people, uh, whether it's their ideology, 
um, their uh, approach to life, everything. You know, we are, are young people, and I was one of those young people. We, we tend to be intolerant and judgmental. And the reality is, is as you grow older, you realize that humanity is just, we're just a sort of combination of flaws and errors and um, uh, joys and overcoming many things. So I think that we human beings are so complex. And so we have to be more tolerant uh, um, of people and not be judgmental because we all, you know, the idea is don't throw stones. Um, um, if those in glass houses uh, should not throw mm-hmm. stones. So those lessons, I think, come with life. And then just patience. I think that we are so keen. I was so keen to make things happen and so on. And when you live long enough, you realize that, you know, from the long arc of life, things happen. They take, they, 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 they sort of take time. They stew. Friendships stew over decades. Um, successes come. They happen and they come over decades and so on. So you have to see life as a series of short-term uh, victories as well as medium and long-term. And then also, you know, when uh, not allow obstacles uh, and pain to, to define you, but really to see them just as, you know, factors to be overcome. So those are some of the lessons that I've learned. And I've also learned the most, for me, the best lesson in life is just to laugh when you can, you know, to laugh um, with people, not at people, um, and, and not to take yourself so seriously. Mm-hmm. Humor is a wonderful, wonderful vehicle through which to um, experience life and particularly through which to experience pain. And um, for me, growing up in Cape Town, you know, that's one thing that I picked up. Well, laughter amidst some of the most grotesque circumstances. Thank you for sharing those pearls of wisdom. And lastly, as we close the conversation today, can you please give us a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to girls and women in Africa who are listening to us? Um, the, the words of inspiration are probably going to be cliches, but because they, but just because they're cliches doesn't mean that they don't work. So the one is uh, the Mahatma Gandhi statement, be the change you want to see in the world. And also for girls and women, just believe in yourself. Do not allow others to shape your sense of yourself. And be brave and be bold and uh, try to find joy in in, in life. Um, Don't let negativity um, influence your your world. Uh, uh, Be a hopeful optimist, always. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and for sharing it with us today and going through from the law component and all of your life experiences. Thank you. You are welcome. You have been listening to Humanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to Professor Penelope Andrews, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Cape Town.